Here's Neymar now, Cavani is there. And Saint-Etienne has surely won it in the 89th minute. Kalupa Cavano. Oh, what a strike. An absolute beauty for Florian Tobak. Kylian Mbappé wraps it up. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of Le Beaujeu, the official Ligue 1 podcast. This week we're going to be talking about some of the British and Irish players who have graced France's top flight. We'll be hearing from the Marseille and Nancy legend Tony Cascarino, as well as a young English striker, Steffi Mavadidi, who's been thriving at Dijon this season. Now we have an outstanding panel too this week, including two of our regulars, Robbie Thompson and David Crossan and a very special guest, Martin Tyler. Now, Martin needs very little introduction for millions of people around the world. He is the voice of the Premier League, if not the voice of football, full stop. So, Martin, thank you ever so much for joining us. Bienvenue. How are you doing? I hope you're keeping well and keeping healthy. Well, I've got plenty of time on my hands to talk to you. And uh, that goes probably for everybody that you're trying to approach for this wonderful podcast. Um, but we're, yeah, we're doing okay. It's, um, I think the, the gravity of the situation took a little while to um, actually understand, but we do all understand it now. Um, we know people who are, are afflicted with the virus. Even our own prime minister at the moment is struggling with it. So um, it's, it's a global problem and we're all missing football like crazy. That goes without saying really, but it's not that important. And I never thought I would be saying that, but it is not that important in the scheme of things. So it's nice to have the opportunity to have a, a chat. Like a lot of Englishmen, I learned French at school and um, we weren't taught about speaking it very much. The oral exam wasn't very important, um, but the reading skills were good. We got tested on that and I can still read L'Equipe and all the other French magazines that come my way and they've down the years have been wonderful for keeping abreast with French football. Uh, but just to tell you, I worked for UEFA in Paris in the 2016 European Championship with a total French crew. And uh, by probably 12 or 14 days in, I started for the first time in my life, and I'm a fairly senior citizen, to actually think in French. It lasted two days because my French colleagues, who I was trying to help by me speaking French and thinking in French, when I got to that point, they immediately unveiled wonderful vocabulary in English. And, uh, of course, it spoiled my moment, really, because we ended up speaking English for the rest of the time. So hopefully we can speak English today. <laughs> That's a, that's a, we were just chatting, Martin and I, earlier, but that's something that seems to happen in France, Martin, when the, the French will not speak to you in English while you're speaking English, but as soon as you try and make the effort to speak in French, they just switch over because nearly all of them speak perfect French. So it's, a, it's, a, it's something to do with their, their nationality. It's a funny one. But I've been here in, in France for 20 years now, Martin. You were, you were even coming to France before that. We worked together in Switzerland on Euro 2008, which was, which was good fun. But we were just chatting. You've been in France, and the reason we got you on, for, you've been in France for some of the biggest moments in the history of French football. Yes, that's, uh, that's true. Uh, I can remember vividly the 1984 European Championship, a much smaller competition in those days, staged in France, won by France. And of course, the 1998 World Cup staged in France, won by France. Not everybody takes full advantage of home advantage, so I'm not being critical. Um, they were very good teams and uh, wonderful players. And they um, I had some embarrassing moments. I had to ask Michel Platini how he pronounced his name because in England, everyone was calling him Platini. He looked at me um, with a certain amount of disgust, I think, but I managed to get it right. And um, there was an awful moment where one of my producers, when I was calling Platini, said, uh, we think it's Platini. And I went, well, he doesn't, but I did add an expletive or two to that, and it didn't do my career much good at the time. Um, but I've tried to be true to who was a wonderful player, by the way. I commentated on his back-to-back hat-tricks in the Euros of uh, 1984, and um, he was just uh, just football beauty to behold in terms of the art of the game. And, and that goes for a lot of French footballers down the years. Absolutely. Um, Dave, you want to bring the conversation on to... Um... To the Brits, the Brits and the Irish who've who've come over to France and uh, and a lot of them done really well. Well, maybe not that many have done really well, but the two who did superbly are, are remembered with such affection 
uh, across the country, not just for the clubs they played for. Uh, Glenn Hoddle came over in 87 and he was terrific in 87, 88 under Wenger as Monaco won the title. Mark Hately, another Englishman, was in that same team. And his artistry, I, I watched a compilation of his best moments from Monaco in that season. He scored eight goals, set up many more, had a completely free role because he said he was being man-marked. And Monaco were just happy for him to wander around the pitch and make things happen. Uh, Chris Waddle came to Marseille in 1989 and the transfer fee was huge. And this is what people now probably don't understand is that coming from England to France was a step up in terms of the contract you were going to receive. It was a 45 million French franc transfer fee. And that was the third highest transfer fee in the world at the time behind Maradona and Hullet. So there was a lot of expectation on him. It took him a little while to settle in uh, because he didn't have a house initially. He stayed with Jean-Pierre Papin for a while. But then he hit his stride. And I think for players who have a real impact, it goes beyond the goals, the assists, the trophies. It's a cultural impact. And Waddle had a phenomenal cultural impact at Marseille. He had so many nicknames, Le Dribbler Fou, which is the crazy dribbler. Magic Chris, even now when you go to Marseille and you say, I'm English, ah, Magic Chris, Magic Chris. The clown, the clown, because he played up to the crowd and got involved, did his bunny ears thing. He was nicknamed Bugs Bunny at one point did a record with Basil Boli. Um, all of the young Marseillais emulated his changing haircuts from the mullet through to the blonde streaks in his hair, et cetera, et cetera. But it was the style with which he played. The, the little jinx, the feints, the drop of the shoulder, the step overs, making defenders look stupid. And France as a whole warmed to that and they warmed to his personality. And the number of goals that he created for Jean-Pierre Papin in the three years they played together is simply stunning. What I'd forgotten about him, actually, was how good he was at taking free kicks because when he played in England before going to France, I can't remember him taking free kicks. Martin, what are your mem memories of Waddle? Because it, it's, it's interesting. He's obviously seen as a very talented player who, who had some great moments for England, some great moments for Spurs and, and Sheffield Wednesday, but he's maybe not seen as one of, one of the greats of English football, whereas in France... You know, he is an absolute legend and probably um, his, his four best seasons did come while, while he was over here in France. What are, what are your sort of views on him? Because he was, unfortunately, a little bit inconsistent with England, wasn't he? Well, one thing I can tell you is he's still playing. Um, he loves the game that much. Uh, he plays uh, local football in Sheffield. I see him quite a lot. He knows everything about football. He knows every level of football. He's a proper, proper football person. And yeah, you're probably right. He was uh, seen as a, a bit of a lanky, callow youth when he was at Newcastle. And uh, although he did, uh, he did pretty well at Tottenham, he came back from Marseille and, and Sheffield Wednesday had a very good team. Uh, at that time and they got to two cup finals in the two domestic cup finals in the 92-93 season uh, he had a lot of international players playing around him at Sheffield Wednesday and he was taking the free kicks by the way by then uh, he scored a wonderful one at Wembley in an FA Cup semi-final if I remember rightly um, but yeah a bit of a um, uh, not a loose cannon, really. That, that that's not the best description. But an unpredictable talent, um, a, a leggy player with a low centre of gravity is most unusual. Um, he certainly had some uh, great stamina as well. He, he, he kept going. That's why I think he's still playing. He was a he was a, an athlete without really looking like an athlete, you know. Um, and on the subject of haircuts, I can bring you right up to date because he did do the draw for the. Sadly, not yet played the quarterfinals of the FA Cup, and he arrived. and And the people in football who know him well, I couldn't believe it, with the most modern shave around above his ears, as if he was actually going to go and play as a, a twenty-year-old again. And then it, it certainly everybody was. I, I just watched it on the television, the draw, like most people. I went, "What?" Um, and then the mullet is long gone. So, um, uh, but great guy. Um, and I'm delighted he's remembered so well in France. He is, he is absolutely loved. You're, you're listening to Martin Tyler on Le Bourge, which is uh, your official League 1 podcast available on all the main platforms, Spotify, Deezer, Apple. Do take the time to rate us. If you have any questions, you can email us on league1podcast at gmail.com. You could even send in audio of your questions and we will play it on the, uh, on the pod if you can send it in. Um, on an MP3 file or a WAV file. Um, yeah, I mean, Waddle, 
is still, you know, an absolute legend down here. You talk about the haircut there. There were people and there still are people in Marseille with with that mullet. I mean, that 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 just goes to to show you his influence. But, um, you know, Hoddle, Hoddle was the says first. more about Marseille, perhaps, than Chris <laughs> Waddle, Matt. Hoddle, Hoddle was was the first, along with Haightley in, in 87. And um, another one, I'm, I'm kind of tempted to say that he's because, I you know, I grew up in England and I knew Glenn Hoddle was a phenomenal footballer with, with vision. But again, I think he only played 54 times for England. Um, people I've spoken to at Monaco, I know Dave's been talking to Luc, Luc Sonor, the former Monaco player. I've interviewed um, Jean-Luc Ettori, the, the goalkeeper, who said to me at the time, he thought Glenn Hoddle was the best player in the world. He said Maradona was a little bit on the way back sort of late 80s. Um, uh, Zidane hadn't quite appeared on the scene. Now, of course, you know, we can talk about Van Basten, we can talk about other players, but the fact that this respected Monaco legend Ettori is saying that Hoddle was the best player in the world. I'll just bring Martin in on, on, on his thoughts um, on that about Hoddle, just, just how good a footballer he was. Well, you could argue he was too good a footballer for the English game, really. Um, they wouldn't build the teams around him that he probably could have structured and taken to greater glory, he achieved a fair bit. Um, an amazing talent. I was lucky enough, actually, to play a game against him um, in the mid-1980s um, because he'd come back from an injury. They were playing Bayern Munich on the Wednesday and he was supposed to play a reserve game on the Saturday. He was called off. And we had a, a commentator's team and we were playing the Tottenham staff uh, at the training ground on, on the Sunday. And we got a call saying, look, um, we've got this problem with Glenn Hoddle. Um, he's got to play a game because we're playing Bayern and we need to know whether he's fit or not. And this is the only game we can think of. Um, would you mind? And we went, well, <laughs> would you mind? It was a, it was a, a privilege and, and a pleasure. And he played properly. So although it was a, a bit of a knockabout game, it wasn't for his team and he had to play to prove his fitness. And um, if, if you weren't a believer before you stepped onto the field with him, you, you certainly were afterwards. He, he was extraordinary. And so to get it, that, that was a real un unlikely privilege that I had to, to see him. Um, yeah, I, I, but a very strong-minded person as well and, and really wanting to play the game his way. And I think at times that might have worked against him with England a little bit. Um, you're right, 50-odd caps is nothing to show for a, a player of that talent. Happily, again, bringing everybody up to date, he is still around, but that was a close call a year or so ago. He had a, a heart attack and there was airlifted to hospital from a television studio where he was working. He's um, made, it seems, I'm touching wood here, um, a complete recovery. I, I've seen him a lot. He's um, he's a, a great football person to be around and, and we nearly lost him. Um, and... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm delighted to say that that didn't happen and, and he's, um, he's very much in, in good health and still talking about those games and he loved his time in France. He absolutely loved it and I'm sure it contributes a lot to the huddle that we know and remember with such affection. How, how is it that these some, well not these players, but it's off, it often happens that a player that doesn't necessarily settle in his own home country can go to a, a foreign country and have a, a character that perhaps, and I'm, I'm trying to think because it happens in, in both directions. Normally a Chris Waddle type character, if he was French, he'd hardly be accepted in, in French football culture either. And we saw examples of the, the a French type Chris Waddle, Eric Cantona, a player with character and everything who's not so well respected in France that has to go overseas to to really fulfill his true potential. And there you guys are saying that this happened in England, perhaps with a couple of, you know, players that we think of as incredible footballers that in the end couldn't settle in their own country, had to go somewhere else to, to flourish. Why, how is that with football? Is there too much pressure on, on people coming? And it happens in a, as an Australian all the time. We have these Australians that have to go overseas to prove themselves because otherwise it's a, is it a, global tall poppy syndrome or something i actually think in the 80s there was a particular context to english football that tottenham where hoddle played with waddle were ahead of their time in many ways because they had these technical players they had osvaldo ardiles as well who had a brief spell at paris saint germain in the early 80s mm. and but a lot of teams were emphasizing let's say that the physical attributes of the game that chase the ball hard get the tackles in 
But Hoddle and Waddle had the techniques to adapt to French football straight away. And I, I saw an interview that Hoddle did uh, towards the end of his first season at Monaco. And he said, when I watch Ligue 2 games, the second tier of French football, I see players there with techniques that wouldn't be out of place in the top division in England because there's a different way of playing. And he said, there aren't the same 50-50s. We still get clobbered by defenders, but the players are in in possession of the ball when they get clobbered. It's not two players going in for the same ball. Um, Watching the Waddle videos, Cantona was actually Marseille's record signing and it didn't work out at all. But there was one goal that Waddle set up for Cantona, but the, the Cantona myth only, or the legend of Cantona only started once he came to England after that, refusing to have that trial at Sheffield Wednesday and then winning the league with Leeds and then all those titles with Manchester United. I think um, you're quite right, Dave, but I think there's circumstances and there's sort of, you know, the, the setting, the atmosphere at a club. And Marseille is a, is a special club in that respect. The atmosphere at the Velodrome is unbelievable. You're on the Mediterranean coast. Everybody is uh, very, very excitable. And there's no question that Marseille loved Chris Waddle's personality. And just to make a comparison. I'm not comparing them as footballers, but Joey Barton, you know, at Marseille, the Marseille fans took him to their heart because they loved his personality. He wasn't actually very good to be honest. I mean, he didn't do too badly, but he wasn't amazing in midfield, but they loved him. They loved him on social media. They loved the way he came to the fans. He interacted with, with the fans. And I think Waddle, um, you know, was just the perfect fit at Marseille. And just to give a little bit of context, because I'll bring in um, Tony Cascarino in a sec. Marseille were, were an unbelievable side in the late 80s, early, early 90s. Uh, they won a, a string of league titles. Jean-Pierre Papin was unbelievable. Uh, Francescoli, they, they, they had phenomenal players, which the European Cup final in 91, lost to Red Star. Again, got to the final in 93, and they beat AC Milan thanks to Basil Bolli's header. Unfortunately then for, for Marseille, uh, after winning the league in 93, they were stripped of that league title following the match-fixing scandal. They, um, they were relegated to the second division in 94. And that is when Tony Cascarino joined the club. Um, and it was fascinating talking to Tony Cascarino because um, he, he explained about, um, you know, what it was like for him down there. People can look at it now and think, well, he was playing in the second division. He scored 70 goals in two seasons. But again, the Marseille fans took him to their heart because they could see that he gave absolutely everything. And... Um, We'll just play a little extract now of Tony Cascarino telling us what it was like to, to have to follow in the footsteps. He was effectively replacing um, the likes of Boxic, Rudy Vola, Jean-Pierre Papin. He was the number nine stepping into those shoes. When I signed and I went down to the uh, bureau uh, in Marseille to, to the office to, to chat and negotiate, as I walked in, Rudy Vola was walking out. And it felt really surreal because he was the obviously the ex number nine. I think he went to Roma at that time. He's walking out and he looks at me and said, Good luck, Tony. He said, You'll love Marseille. And that was just really weird. The first time I'd, I'd ever crossed paths with Rudy Bull, it was literally across the, the office in, in Marseille. So it was, um, it was a strange one. And it made me realize you just mentioned the great Tony Anderson, who was a great player for Marseille, um, and then Rudy Vuller. And if you go back, you know, Moser, Waddle, uh, Desai, just some great players who represent that club. Jean-Pierre Papin, realising that I was going to wear the number nine shirt of the iconic number nine of a club that had had Francescoli, Papin, you know, just was, wow, this is a great chance for me to really, you know, reinvent myself, if you like, Matt. Bernard Tappy, of course, um, is... You know, a legendary name. Um, not everybody uh, is is a fan of his, and of course, um, he's had he's had his uh, his issues. Let's let's say, but he's still a huge legend in 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 Marseille and the man behind that in- incredible period. Did you have much contact with him? Did, did was he influential in signing you? <laughs> yes, I went to Paris to sign. Um, or well, negotiate. The first meeting was in Paris to negotiate, and the second meeting was to go to Marseille and sign when I crossed uh, Rudy Vula. Um, and when I went to his chateau in Paris, um, there were removal vans coming out of the of his building, and I was like, "This is really weird." It's all these trucks keep coming out, and didn't think much of it. And he spoke broken English to me. His English was okay, but I obviously knew zero French. Um, and we were talking, and he um, 
and he asked me, one of the things he did to me, first of all, he said to me, <coughs> what do you play like? And I've gone, and before I've gone to say something, he's gone, are you like Hoddle? And put his bum up. And I went, no, not like Hoddle. And he went like a Waddle and put his bum up. And I've gone, no, I'm not like Waddle. And he went, Stephen, Trevor Stephen? No. And he went, Hately? And I went, yeah. And he put his thumb down to me. <laughs> so I, like, I looked at him and I thought, you know exactly what I am. You've brought me to be a big centre forward and you have a certain way you want to play in Division 2. But he was like that. We, You mentioned the Olympiacos there, Matt. And when we played Olympiacos away, I talked to a journalist from England before the game. And he saw me chatting. I was chatting away. And we came in at half time, and we were – I missed two sitters in the, in the first half. And from nowhere, he launched into me and said, how much they pay you? How much? How much? He kept doing this. And I was like, what? Uh, two occasions. Two occasions. You missed. You missed. And, going, and he was literally going – so I told him to where to go. I said, oh, F off uh, to him. And he took his jacket off. And come over to me in the dressing room with his literally his arms rest, his fists clenched, and all the lads jumped in between me and Tappy. And I'm still telling him where to go. And they're like, no, 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 calm, calm, calm. And this is all in a half time at Olympiacos. Of course, we go out second half, we win the game, we win. When we get back to the uh, the training ground, uh, the commandery in Marseille the next day, he pulls up in a car on the pitch while the game's going on, comes out of the car. And comes up to me and says, uh, you big uh, bullser, big bullsewer. And I just laughed. It was just really weird. It, but he was um, a maverick. I think the one thing that, that always stood out for me is that Tappy really knew his football and knew what he wanted from his team. And his demands were extraordinary. Um, he could lie. He could tell you <laughs> he'd miss all, you know, like But strange, an incredible personality. Well, fascinating stuff from Tony Cascarino. And if you do want to hear more of those uh, incredible stories, he talks about um, his transfer to, to Nancy, how he turned up in, in Nancy, still wearing his shorts and, and flip-flops and got a bit of a shock when he stepped out of his car and it was uh, absolutely freezing. But uh, Tony Cascarino still, you know, really remembered very fondly over here. You can, you can download the, uh, the full interview on our platform, uh, Le Bourgeois. Um, and I strongly recommend you you give it a go. But uh, Dave, we talked about Hoddle, Waddle, uh, Cascarino. They were they were big hits. There were quite a few other players. Some did well. Some some not so well. Yeah, just as a footnote to what we've been saying before, if, if Waddle had had Cascarino's heading ability, Marseille would have been European champions in '91. He had the two big chances against Red Star Belgrade in that final, but unfortunately, both of them were headers, and it's a real shame both for Waddle and for Jean Pierre Papin that they'd left by the time Marseille did win the European Cup in 93. Uh, yeah, there were some who I, you would have expected to have done better. Or there were some bizarre transfers as well. That Some players you played second division football when they were quite big names in England. There, there were some people who didn't stay for very long. Ray Wilkins had a short spell at Paris Saint-Germain. Apparently was very, very good, but he didn't stick around for very long. Uh, Trevor Stevens struggled at Marseille. Lee Chapman didn't do much at Niort. Mick McCarthy... Uh, the Irish international played 10 games for Lyon. Clive Allen had one season at Bordeaux. It's fair to say, despite quite a decent strike rate, he wasn't the player who'd scored those 49 goals for Tottenham just before going. Um, one player who is probably forgotten by a lot of people is Eric Black, the Scottish international, because he won the French Cup at Metz in 1988 and had a, a strike rate of about one goal every three games. A real Metz hero but had to retire in his late 20s because he had a back problem. There were the two lads at Caen. Graham Ricks said he had the best three years of his career at Caen. Um, Brian Steen came off the bench in the last game of the season against Cannes, scored a hat-trick, and that kept them up in 1989. So for players that had an impact. I might um, have the, um, the reason why Graham Ricks enjoyed his football so much at Caen. I, I interviewed Philippe Montagnier a few years back when he was managing Rennes. Montagnier was the Caen goalkeeper at the time. And he struck up a good friendship with Graham Ricks. And he explained to me, because he had the most impressive wine cellar in the con team. And Graham Ricks was, was extremely keen on popping around to Mr. Montagnier's house to, to, to have a look. Yeah, I read a, a little interview that Ricks did quite recently because there have been some con reunions. He's still good mates with Montagnier, as you say, and also with Rudy Garcia, who was at con at the time. 
Uh, and he said that one of the con directors used to come around with the espresso before the match and he'd always drop a little bit of Calvados into Rick's one before the game <laughs> just to get him going. Yes, uh, Martin, you had, you, you had some dealings with, uh, with Rick's and, and Steen, did you? Um, yeah, just uh, thinking about the, um, the change in the weather that you were talking about for Tony Cascarino. As uh, English reporters, we were queuing up to try and get the trip to go and do updates with Hoddle and Waddle down on the Côte d'Azur. But um, I remember getting sent to see Messrs Steen and Ricks in Dunkirk. Um, I think they were playing a cup game or something like that. And, and we just found it fell on, it might have been on a Thursday night or a Friday night. It was an unusual game. And of course, um, it wasn't quite like going to the south of France, going to the, the north of France. But I, I see a bit of Clive Allen. He does co-commentaries with us for some of the world feeds. And he speaks very warmly of his time um, uh, in Bordeaux. And he, he loved the lifestyle and, and would have stayed longer. But he had he mentioned the various presidents of French clubs who were fairly autocratic, I think, in the 1980s. I think it was called Claude Bez was um, in charge of Bordeaux. And he tells amazing stories, Clive, about how um, Bez tried to get rid of him on a few occasions, including one occasion where they turned up maybe for what never turned out to be another season for him, where there was no kit put out. Everybody's kit, even down to the 18-year-olds, were put out ready for the new season, pre-season. And there was nothing for Clive and about three or four others. And they were just told to go off on their own devices. And in, in the end, um, Clive's quite a, a strong-minded person and he stuck it out for as long as he could. Uh, but in the end... Uh, yeah, he left without making quite the impact that, um, that he hoped he had done. David mentioned it earlier. Of course, these were good money moves for the uh, English players and the Irish players in the, in the 1980s. Um, obviously, there's a lot more money in English football these days, and therefore uh, transfers across the channel are not seen perhaps in the same light. No, well, you, you, you make a good point, Martin, and you bring me on to the next subject very nicely. Um, French football as well, you know, Yes, they, they could compete financially uh, back back in those days. Uh, it was also the same time that the English clubs were banned from European football. So if the likes of Hoddle and Waddle wanted to play in Europe, they, they needed to move abroad. Of course, um, the, the, the power sort of changed, didn't it, with, um, with Sky Sports and with um, a lot of money coming into the Premier League. Um, but the Premier League benefited hugely from, from French know-how, from French talent, um, I was going to say it started with Wenger, but actually it started with, with Eric Cantona, didn't it? Who was already winning trophies with, 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 uh, with Manchester United. So Martin, I imagine for you, you know, who was very much part of the, the Sky Revolution as well, it must, be, must have been a, an incredible era to be involved in the Premier League. Uh, it certainly was. Um, I think there were 12 foreign players took part either as a substitute or as a starter in the first round of matches in the Premier League in 1990, August 1992. And now we're counting the English players, aren't we, as, as, as the exceptions rather than the rules. So it has been uh, an extraordinary development, a very good development for um, the quality of the football, the variety of the football. I do think the... Um, uh, the English way had gone a bit, people used to talk about the English way of playing fairly disparagingly, kick and rush, the Dutch used to call us. Um, I think that was a little bit um, oversimplification, but there was a fair bit of it. And and players like Tony Cascarino uh, were, were perfect for that, really. So there must have been a few high balls going into the box at Marseille in the second division in those uh, times where he's scoring those 70 goals. So I think a bit, a bit of English football or Irish football in Cassie's case, um, so, yeah, they, I think the respectability and then now the esteem the English game is held in has really started from the, the restructuring of the league. And, of course, Eric scored, I believe, the very first Premier League hat-trick um, when he was at Leeds, for that short time he was at Leeds, uh, and then uh, came to Manchester United um, and the... Um, the king had found his kingdom, really. And he, he was regal from the moment he warmed up in the tunnel to come on for his debut in a Manchester derby at half-time. And we had more shots of down the tunnel than we seemed to have of the match because he was such a, uh, an exciting presence. And he didn't disappoint, of course, obviously. The controversy that came with it, the, uh, the incident at Crystal Palace, obviously defined some of his time in England. But he was a very special player who needed loving, I guess, needed appreciating. And in Sir Alex, 
Alec Ferguson, who knew how to manage most different types, um, certainly came up with a recipe to get the best out of Eric. Was, is there a country, Martin, for, for you, watcher who's seen more Premier League football probably than anybody else, that, that had such an impact on the Premier League? I mean, I know there have been a lot of French players that didn't make it in the Premier League as well, or perhaps were purchased because we thought oh, French players are all good. And that's obviously not, not necessarily the case. But was there another country? I'm trying to think of South Americans didn't necessarily have that impact. Germans stayed in Germany. Italians, there were a couple of Italians that, that went to Chelsea in that, that era, the Zolas and Viales, Mancini eventually. You know, these Spanish players didn't really till later. It, it really was the French, wasn't it? Maybe Dutch, Belgians, I can't think of any others. Uh, at the beginning, Robbie, the Scandinavians came in, ah, yes, droves, of course, yeah. Yeah. and uh, they were seen to have the kind of physicality to uh, adapt to the English game. And we had, we had a lot of I mean, Norway had a very good team then, and Egil Olsen, their manager, came over and managed in the Premier League as well, not very successfully, but there was that kind of, um, uh, I suppose that that was the initial. Peter Schmeichel of, mm. from Denmark, obviously that kind of stuff. But um, now the French have. Uh, I'm actually my, when I finish talking to you guys, I, I'm writing a piece about Thierry Henry and Robert Pires in the uh, Invincible season, and uh, they have not only um, uh, embroidered English football, uh, English England has embroidered their lives. You know, I mean, I'm sure they both still have homes here. Um, Robert, who didn't want to speak English very much, is now a member of the media corps, and you can chat to him about anything. Um, um, and, and, of course, he he probably only suffers in comparison because Thierry scores so many more goals. But he was a joy to to behold. And then, obviously, the whole Wenger bit and Alka. And, um, yeah, there were some French players that came in in a job lot, really, around that time that didn't um, pull up too many trees. But uh, it's been great. Will Tour won the title for, for Arsenal and that famous goal at Old Trafford. So... Um, the, the, there's been, you know, the two the two nations have their their differences on other fronts, but I think football wise, we're we're tied together. And, and my trips to to cover games in France over the years, whether it's the French national team or club games, uh, have always been joyous occasions. And the uh, the willingness, the, the technical ability, and the single mindedness. You know, I mean, we we think we're pretty um, strong minded uh, as Brits, but I, I think the French probably can match us maybe even surpass us with their beliefs and the way things should be done. Arsene Wenger, I, I must speak about Arsene because uh, when he came, I, 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 he was another one, actually, I had to ask, when when he was manager of Monaco in the final, was against the German club in, in um, the early 90s. Uh, they lost, anyway. Uh, Klaus Alofs, I think, did some damage. I had to ask Arsene how to pronounce his surname because being in France, it could be a Wanger or whatever. And I, I was a, that's the first time I spoke to him. How do you pronounce your name? I'm sorry, I have to ask. I've got a commentator. But when he came to England, I spent a couple of hours with him, like talking about his philosophy when he first came over. And what, what he did, um, uh, people talk about Guardiola and, and uh, other managers now playing from the back. And, and that's the way football should be played. Arsene got Tony Adams and Steve Bold and Martin Keown to do that, to believe in their ability. And that they were players, not just defenders. And his whole philosophy is a huge part of what we're talking about today. Well, what really struck me at, at the time in the Premier League was absolutely fantastic to watch. It was uh, 100 miles an hour, just in- incredible entertainment. But when some of these very technical players, and particularly the French, came in, they, they added a, another dimension. And uh, I think that did start with, with Eric Cantona. And I think it may have been even your colleague Andy Gray who showed this on one of the touchscreens that he he was actually effective so effective by not moving by by actually standing still a lot of the time there'd be an attack going you know United would be roaring forward everybody would be trying to get in the six yard box and Cantona would sort of stand back on on the edge of the box and he had that intelligence that sort of you know ability to read the game ability to find space by by not moving and then I you know I remember um I was uh going to watch Arsenal a lot um, back in the, in the 1990s. And uh, uh, Patrick Vieira and Remy Gard came when, when Wenger joined. I remember Patrick Vieira's first appearance. He, he came on against Sheffield Wednesday when Ray Parler got injured and um, just totally transformed the game. And again, he did it, not necessarily by standing still, but he'd, he'd get the ball. There'd immediately be three or four Sheffield Wednesday players around him. And he just had that technical assurance that he could 
you know, drop a shoulder, push the ball one way, move the other way. And these players would sort of come flying around him. And they just seem to have a little bit more time than everybody else. And, you know, I think that probably goes back to a lot of the, the, the French sort of training philosophy that the technique was so drilled into them. It was second nature. They could control a ball and they just had that extra, extra split second. And of course, you know, Wenger's training methods were, were, were also something that, that helped take Arsenal and even the Premier League forward. Um, and I know Dave's itching to come in as well because uh, Newcastle, we, you know, we talk about Arsenal first and foremost, I think, with the French influence, but Newcastle were not, were not far behind, were they? And uh, they actually continued that long you know, into, the, uh, into the more modern era, bringing in players from the second division and the top flight as well. But in the 90s, Dave, they had some fantastic French players. Yeah, I'll, and some not-so-good ones as well. But I'll start with the, the star, David Ginola. And he was signed for only two and a half million pounds. So just over half of what Marseille had paid for Waddle some six years previously. And the first six months that Ginola spent at Newcastle, it was just sensational. The, the technique, the Cruyff turns, the personality player with the film star looks, he was adored by the Newcastle supporters and really effective on the pitch because Keegan just gave him license to play. Right, He didn't like defending, but he didn't really have to in the first six months. Then things got a bit tougher and the two worlds, or my personal worlds, collided in that famous game when Manchester United came to Newcastle in March 1996 and Cantona scored the winner because I idolised Cantona as a teenager and here he was with a, a dagger blow to Newcastle's title hopes in a game that Newcastle had dominated. But they, yeah, the love affair with French players didn't stop there. There were stutters when not-so-good ones were there, the likes of Franck Dumas and Laurent Chavez. But the, the next time that a French player had the influence that Ginola did was when Johan Kabay arrived from Lille just after they'd done the double in 2011. And Kabay in that first season got Newcastle to finish fifth. And a lot of it was down to him. Uh, and they finished above Chelsea, who won the Champions League that season. And Newcastle really haven't been the same since Kabay was sold to Paris Saint-Germain in the January of 2014. And Kabay, sadly for him, has not been the same player either. That Graham Carr, the scout, used to come to France all the time, had very good links with the French system and an eye for a bargain. But like with all these things, these clubs that try to sign players on the cheap and then sell them on for big money or try to get that bargain, eventually you come to the end of the system, which is something that Monaco have found nowadays with their policy of buying young players and selling them on for a huge profit. And Newcastle had the same thing, the law of diminishing returns when it came to the French players, as economists would call it. I think there, there was, for, for me, looking from more from the outside than you guys, I didn't have a favourite team or, or all these allegiances in England, but everything you're saying, and I've, I've, I've spent a little bit of time with David Ginola since moving here to, and being with PSG, is that he was an incredible athlete as well. He was, he was a, a big man, a strong man. He was fast. He could resist into challenges of defenders flying in on him. Patrick Vieira is a similar one who brought physical Thierry Henry as well. They're, we're not just talking about, you know, skillful little players. We're talking big, strong men who also had that technique. And that's why they were able to make that difference. Is that not something, and perhaps, Martin, the, the modern era? Of, and it was the French that, that brought in this modern era. Well, physicality, it would be very interesting to know whether Alain Jures, for example, could have played in the Premier League, you know, um, that mm -hmm. kind of uh, beautiful technician, but with no great physical stock. Uh, and you're right. I was thinking about Patrick Vieira before you brought him up, uh, Robbie, because, I mean, he was perfectly built to be a British player, you know, and his uh, energy and aggression allied to some really good technique. Manu Petit wasn't far behind in, in that respect as well. well. Mm -hmm. And you think, you know, they, they were part of a World Cup winning side. And uh, that that's the kind of level that we were talking about at this time. But it is different now. I mean, players do want to come from France to England to make money and, and maybe use it as a stepping stone or make their mark. Um, Kabay wasn't quite the same player when he left Newcastle, certainly in English football, uh, but he definitely had a, a big impact. But there's still a bit of a French connection up in the northeast, uh, and th there are factors now in English football which um, I guess it's the same. We did t touch upon it earlier 
in France a different climate, you know. There are more clubs now on the south coast of England. It's not quite the same as the south coast of France, but we've now got Bournemouth and Brighton and Southampton, and that they can attract players. It's harder for, for teams like Newcastle up in the, the perceived. It's a wonderful place, by the way, but it's perceived as maybe not being as fashionable, certainly not as nice with the weather. Um, it's difficult for them. So picking and choosing is, is not as easy as it perhaps once was. Graham Carr, that David rightly mentions, had a, a wonderful um, array of contacts in France and for many years kept Newcastle afloat in that particular side of the market. And of course, Arsene Wenger, uh, the same. He got he got um, players like Fabregas, um, uh, not, not, not a, a, a Frenchman, but a young player, uh, Anelka being the Frenchman, I suppose, of that, that type as well, because he knew. And, and the scouting networks weren't as good then from the other clubs as they are now. Now, everybody knows everything about everybody because they're all online and they're all scout seven um, systems and things like that. You can find out about everything except about what they're like as people, by the way, which is a really important part of the recruitment um, by just going online like we are now. <laughs> just um, regarding the the culture shock and, and changing countries, change, changing weather. There's a terrific interview as well on our, on our platform, Le Bourgeois, um, that was conducted by Ian Holyman, our, our producer, who, talk, who talked to David Bellion in depth. Now, Bellion didn't um, leave a huge trace in, in English football, but Ian notably talks about how, what it was like for him moving from, from Cannes um, in the, you know, on the Côte d'Azur to, to Sunderland. And that, that was quite interesting. And, and David, I think, does admit that he didn't have a clue where Sunderland was when the, um, when, when the move was first uh, mooted. But um, Robbie, just going back to you, you talk about Ginola and his incredible physique. And we do, I do remember at Highbury chanting, all you do is wash your hair at David Ginola because he was good at the, um, the shampoo adverts as well. But he was at PSG, he was known as El Magnifico, wasn't he? The mm-hmm, question exactly. I've got for you, Robbie, is he yeah. more Magnifico than PSG's uh, most recent Englishman, David Beckham? Well, we're different eras, Matt. I think Ginola gave more to Paris Saint-Germain on the football pitch than perhaps David Beckham did in the last six months of his career, if that's who you're talking about, PSG's most recent Englishman. Um, But David Beckham, I think he still brought a lot to the table at PSG in those last six months. And it was about a growing club and about belief. And Carlo Ancelotti had worked with him at AC Milan and didn't just bring him in as, as for a, on a Qatari whim to give him a last payday. Ancelotti wanted someone that could instill this belief in this new Paris Saint-Germain. They were playing Barcelona in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. They, you know, and Beckham played in those two fixtures. He wasn't just there making up the numbers. He, was, he, was a, he needed to play a role in that dressing room to show that David Beckham with the pop star girlfriend could be a super professional could hit a ball sweetly, could work hard, was a normal guy. And he did that for a lot of... And the, the players loved David Beckham, just like they loved Zlatan Ibrahimovic in a different style. Two global icons in that team, but very different characters. And you talk to someone like Alphonse Areola, the goalkeeper, who's now at, on loan at Real Madrid, but, but loved David Beckham, loved England because of David Beckham and how well they got along and learned English. And that's that's... That leaves something not necessarily on the football pitch. He didn't score. He laid on a couple of assists. But what Beckham represented was crucial in 2011, 2012, 2013 for Paris Saint-Germain. Martin, does Beckham get a bit of a a raw deal in the UK? Obviously, he's a much cherished figure. People are a little bit um, um, sort of dubious. Uh, You know, when they look at his move to Paris Saint-Germain, they think, well, it was all marketing. But he did have this this impact just through his professionalism. And... uh, you know, he, he's, he's an incredible ambassador, in fact, for English football. Yeah, he's that and he's a lot more as well, Matt, really. He's, um, you tend to forget because you think of Brand Beckham and all the commercial activities that he's involved in and his wife's involved in as well. You tend to forget what a fine footballer he was. Mm. And, and as Robbie says, a, a consummate professional as well. Um, he would do, when he was playing for England towards the end and he was based in the States, you know, he'd come over for these like very squeezed in international fixtures in the in the calendar. Uh, he'd arrive, do everything practical to deal with the jet lag. He wanted to play for his country right to the very end. And he wanted to play top level football. I suppose 
Um, we'll never know whether he could have gone down and, uh, uh, a level or two and still kept playing. That's always the true love. I love the guys like Chris Waddle we talked about earlier, who's uh, probably 60 now and he's still playing in, in uh, Sunday morning park football because he loves the game so much. I don't know whether David would, it wouldn't be possible for him to do that because he'd be mobbed. Word would get around uh, rather like it did when Messi was dropped from a helicopter into the Hackney Marshes in East London for a, an Adidas marketing shoot. And it was supposed to be a secret. And it went out live on the news channels. And, and you know, it was the Pied Piper and people were just arriving by any means of transport possible to get there. And that would be if, if David was to, to play in a charity game, I guess. But a yeah, top guy. Um, yeah, it was the last roll of the dice really wasn't it uh, yeah I'm sure uh, PSG would love to have had him a bit earlier but he he, he did play a part and uh, you're right in the dressing room he just you know he, he's perhaps um, he, he's a good talker but he's not a loud shouter really but just by being there if you're getting changed in the same change room as David Beckham as a PSG player in that short time you'd be going well, wow I'm in the right place here I think the biggest misconception about Beckham is that people think he's acting, that it's all parts of the brand. What, what I've seen in my brief dealings with him is that he's very, very patient with people, journalists, anyone asking him questions, has time for people. And in that last game against Brest that he played at the Parc de France when he wore the captain's armband, the emotion that he showed when he knew that his career was coming to an end, you just can't fake that. And a colleague of ours at BN Sports who works with us, Matt and Robbie, Jerome, put together a lovely montage of the last two minutes of Beckham's career with all these cameras trained on him to the tune, I Want to Be Adored by the Stone Roses, his favourite band. And even when I watch it back now, it's quite emotional to watch. That's how much it meant to him, even though he was in his late 30s and he'd only been playing a few months for PSG. There have been some yeah, amazing stories of players coming from England to France and vice versa. We, we talked about the initial um, trend in the 80s and 90s of these Brits coming to France. And just like I didn't mention John Collins, who won the league with, with Monaco in the late 90s. Mo Johnston was, was at Nantes. And uh, more recently, Stephen Fletcher went, went to Marseille. There's been some interesting ones. So, and then, of course, it, it turned around and all the French came, came to England. Um, what, what I'm wondering now, though, um, I'll put this to Robbie, um, this season, for the first time ever, um, there are 100 uh, French players playing in the top four leagues in Europe, Germany, Spain, England, and Italy. It's the first time any foreign nation has had more than 100 players. Um, has it got too much now? And is it a problem? In particular, if we, look, if we talk about the Premier League, is it a problem now? Um, it's not just the French. It's players coming from all over the world. It's very difficult for English players to get a game in a Premier League club. I think this is all tribute to the, the way the French were ahead of the game. And it's part of French culture. It's a French thing that goes not just into football, but about how they learn music, how they, how they produce uh, aeroplanes, how, how the French do things is that they do them seriously. They, they analyse a situation and they do it all the way. And their youth development was way ahead of the game. Uh, uh, but, and still... Other countries are still playing catch-up. But and it's interesting. Dave sent us all a couple of links uh, to Waddle and Hoddle footage over, over the weekend. And there was an interview with Waddle where he's talking to a French journalist and he's saying, I was working in a sausage factory. And he was 19. And he, he, amateur football wasn't really working out and he was working in a sausage factory. The, the chance of that happening in France to have a professional footballer who was not picked up at the age of 14 or get or 13 and went through the National Academy if he was really good enough, like Kylian Mbappe, Thierry Henry, all those players that were at 13 were at Clairefontaine in Paris or at least in a professional training structure. These kids, and I, I look at Germany and I look at the German players that arrive at PSG who speak English, who speak French, who have been through school, who have, they're, they're a different beast to a French kid who has come through the system and is just a pure footballer. That's what they do, and that's why they export so easily to any country around the world. And there, are, I was talking to Carlos Bocanegra in America over the weekend. They've got French all in America. There are French in Australia. There are French in Indonesia. There are French in Africa. There are French in every country. And as you say, gone past 100. It's because they are footballers. They are not French people that play football. 
they are footballers who play football and that's it i think yeah i think you're right robbie i think the english and other nations i mean i think in england has been catching up, has been working very hard on the grassroots and development. And you're seeing it now, Matt. You're seeing these young kids from England now going elsewhere. Yeah. You see Spanish kids coming through, particularly at Barcelona, but they are all playing catch-up still. The question I want to, to put to, to Martin is, you know, we've seen, obviously, Jaden Sancho has been something of a trailblazer, uh, having done so well at Dortmund. We've seen other young Englishman moving to the Bundesliga and we're seeing some coming to France now. There's a young defender, Jonathan Panzo, who, who joined Monaco, an English youth international. He's been loaned out to Circle Bruges in, in Belgium. Josh Madger left Sunderland for, for, for Bordeaux. He's now a, a Nigerian international. Um, one or two others as well. We saw, we saw John Bostock. But Martin, um, is, this, is this the way forward, looking in the next two or three years? Should young English players... Um, be starting to broaden their horizons and look at other options? You want me to answer this question as of three weeks ago or as we are now? Because there are different dynamics now. Yeah. Um, the Premier League amount of money that's going to be lost in this uh, enforced isolation, enforced cancellation or whatever it's going to be, whether it's going to be a delay or a complete wipeout of what's happened, um, that's going to have a big effect. And it may be suitable for English players to be around now at their English clubs because there may be a, a different dynamic. I, I think, I hope that it will even itself out, but it might take a couple of years before we're back as to where we were and whether we'll ever be back, whether life will ever be the same again. None of us know. Um, but to, as a serious football question from three weeks ago, uh, it's certainly a trend. Um, you're right when you say that the um, young pathway here is coming through. St George's Park's been a wonderful thing for English football, the Clairefontaine, if you like. Um, but the clubs have more power than the national team. So it, it's through the clubs that we've got to look at this. Um, it's interesting that Jaden Sancho wants to come back, I think, to play in England. But he comes back as a, a much more viable footballer for the top level than he would have been if he'd stuck at Manchester City and got a few games here and there. Um, all credit to him. I met him a few times. He's a strong-minded young man. with a. Uh, he's shown a great will as well as his skill to go and do what he's done. And it will be... Uh, there are others following in that path, but it's quite a brave thing. Uh, we're, we're trying to improve, if you like, the um, social skills of young English footballers. Uh, the way they're educated now at the clubs is much better. They're very chattable too now. Um, the Declan Rice's, Mason Mount, people like that. Tammy Abraham's a wonderful young man. There's lots of good young guys out there who could go abroad and handle it. They want to make it here first, that's for sure. Um, but before, it would be very difficult. The Ian Rush syndrome comes back, who, who was a, a wonderful player and went off and, had a, and, and, and couldn't speak hardly any Italian and then had to come back again. That kind of thing um, was more the, exception, more, more the rule than the exception. Kevin Keegan was probably the exception in those times. So we're trying to produce... Uh, it's interesting, Robbie's description of the, the young Frenchman. I would add cinema to his list of things that France has yeah. done so well and started <laughs> off. Um, but it's interesting uh, that you say that, that a lot of these young Brits, um, you know, they are, they seem to be very tuned in, perhaps a little bit yes. more open. I mean, the world has, has moved on a lot. It's, it's a much smaller place these days. I had the pleasure um, last week of talking to Steffi Mavadidi, who's a, a young English striker, 21 years of age, came through the ranks at uh, Arsenal, spent eight seasons at Arsenal. He was in the same year group as, as uh, Reese Nelson, as the, the Willock brothers, uh, Eddie and Ketia. So he, he's delighted to see those guys getting a chance at Arsenal. Chris Willock uh, moved to, to, to Benfica. And now Steffi Mavadidi told me that in, so in 2018, uh, Arsene Wenger left Arsenal. Um, he wasn't quite sure how his future was going to go, if he was going to get a chance or not. And suddenly... His agent got in touch and said, listen, I've got an Italian team from Turin who are, who are interested in you. They play in black and white. And he was, no, you're, you're serious? He got to move to, to, to Juventus. And uh, much like Ian Rush, found it a bit like a foreign country, found it quite difficult over, over there. But, um, you know, from what he told me, and again, he spoke very maturely, it, it, it was a really interesting experience. And he got to train with Cristiano Ronaldo, um, Massimo, Massimiliano Allegri was, was his coach. He managed to get one appearance in Serie A, played most of the season in the reserves. This year, he's been loaned to, to Dijon and he looks a really good player and he's getting regular game time with, um, 
with Dijon. He's scored eight goals, most of which have come this calendar year. So after sort of bedding in, he's, he's really found his feet. So I had this chat with him. Let's hear what he's got to say, because I put the same question to him. In an ideal world where we've got this virus under control, um, would it be good to see other young players like Steffi Mavadidi um, taking this decision just to hop across the channel? It's not far. And to come and play over here in France. I mean, if um, if there's any young boys out there in uh, in these uh, Premier League clubs, um, they're stuck in, in and around the first team. Um, they're not getting as much game time as as, as they would like, and they don't want to dip down into the lower leagues. I mean, League A is definitely a league I'll recommend. It's um, it's a league full of young talent. Um, it's an exciting league, exciting football, beautiful stadiums. Um, nice atmosphere. So I would definitely recommend this league. Well, you can listen to the whole interview with Steffi Mavadidi on our platform, Le Bourgeois, uh, the official League Gun podcast, which is available on all uh, podcast platforms, Spotify, Deezer, Apple. Do rate us, do listen to our interviews. We've got Cascarino up there, David Bellion and Steffi Mavadidi. Um, David Crossan's been, been commentating a lot of matches this season. What have you, what have you made of Mavadidi and, and Dijon? They've, they've, they're, they're above the relegation zone. They're a team that actually play quite good football. Mavadidi is um, he's an interesting striker. I wouldn't compare him with Thierry Henry, although in the interview he does talk about playing for Henry in the Arsenal under-19s. He's got a great story to tell about that. But what have, what, what have you made of him, Dave? I felt when he first started playing, he snatched at chances quite a lot, which could be the difference between training with the likes of Ronaldo or training at Arsenal and suddenly you're in a televised match with a crowd and you've got to try and get the points to keep your team in the division. It's a very, very big difference. But he has settled down and he looks sharp. And I think he's a good foil for Julio Tavares, the Cape Verde international, who is Dijon's main man. He's a big physical striker and Mavadidi can play off him. And they... Hopefully, we will get the football up and running again and those two should keep them up. Well, if there are any English uh, players listening, any youngsters, uh, take Steffi Mavadidi's advice. Come over, join us over here. It's a, it's a lovely country to live in, uh, a lovely league. We're almost, um, we're almost up in terms of uh, time for this podcast, but I think we're going to leave the last word, almost the last word, with, with Martin, who wants to tell us um, one of his favourite stories relating to, to French football, and I think it dates back to 1986. It does. Um, it was France in the sense of a European media 11 playing the Brazilian media 11. Uh, it was probably more like 22 against 22 on the night, but they had Clodoaldo and uh, Rivellino from their World Cup winning side of 1970. So they were pretty well equipped. And we had Puskas for about 10 minutes, but we also had Jean-Michel Larquet, who held us together both uh, uh, tactically and spiritually. And it was, uh, we won 3 1. And uh, I, I managed to grab a goal through a very well taken free kick from Jean Michel. And uh, for the night, it was the night before France played Brazil in the World Cup. Of, of 1986 in Mexico and he came in the dressing room after and said we've beaten Brazil we've beaten Brazil we're going to beat them tomorrow we've never beaten them but we're going to beat them tomorrow and they did and then for 20 years he's obviously now I understand the radio um, analyst rather than the, the TV man alongside the great late uh, Thierry Roland um, I used to see him a lot when he was doing the TV and we high-fived every time so high-five on the radio <laughs> to Jean-Michel. I hope you're listening to this. I've never forgotten you. But Martin, Jean-Michel Larquet, he's still, when he does the, the radio, he's called Le, Le Capitaine. They still call him Le, Le Capitaine Larquet. Um, he was the captain of the great Saint-Étienne side in, in, in the 1970s. Was he, was he pretty much the captain of that media team? Was he bellow, bellowing out the instructions? He was definitely the leader, both on the pitch and in the dressing room. And for him to have to play with someone like me, I mean, that was a real come down for him. But uh, he brought the best out of me, that's for sure. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Thank you ever so much, Martin Tyler, for joining us on, on Le Bourgeois today. It's been a real pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed our special uh, French-English, French-British podcast. We'll be bringing you some uh, similar-themed podcasts in the coming weeks with uh, Australians and American players who have, who have graced Ligue 1. But uh, for now, it's time to wish you all uh, a great week. 
Uh, thank you again for joining us from uh, Martin Tyler and, uh, and Robbie Thompson. Who wants to say something, Robbie? You want to yes, say something? I just have one very quick word because Martin's been telling us about all these media team games and everything and playing. Suddenly, Hoddle shows up to play against the, the journalists, the commentators, 11. I think there's something in this for us, lads. We've got to set up a, a little team here that can play against the likes of Ginola and the, the French guys that are commentating. And Frank Leboeuf is always on playing here. Come on, let's, let's get this. I'm inspired. I want to play again. Yeah, well, we get to play bon, occasionally. Bon chance, mes enfants. Bon chance. We've had kickabouts with Sonny Anderson recently, Robbie, and that's quite, yeah, that's true. quite impressive. Yeah, Patrick Mboma, Bruno Cheru. It's true, it's true. It is fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it is, it is fantastic when, when you can do that. But uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us. I will say goodbye now. That's uh, Robbie. Getting, trying to get the last word in. Martin Tyler, David Cross, and me, Matt Spiro. We'll see you again very soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Good luck. An absolute beauty for Florian Toma.